Hello, Agnes. Hi, Robin. Hey, Arnold. We have a guest today. Who Hi. is? You want to introduce yourself? I'm um, Arnold Brooks. I'm a professor at the University of Chicago, and I teach ancient philosophy. Um, I'm also uh, Agnes Callard's husband and uh, Robin Hansen's friend. And today, the three of us are going to talk about the sacred, uh, something I've been thinking about lately, and ho but hopefully it won't be just me explaining things. But at the beginning, it will be just me explaining things. Before you do that, can you give us like two sentences as to why you're thinking about the sacred? I can. So... <clears throat> I feel like all my professional life as an economist, I've been thinking about ways we economists have ideas for how we could improve the world. And a lot of them involve various institutional changes, often involving money. And I feel like I'm often running against the obstacle that people say, no, you shouldn't do that because of the sacred. And I finally decided, okay, let's just study that thing. Let's figure out what is this thing that keeps getting in my way. Uh, to make sense of it and maybe appreciate it, but maybe find workarounds. Right. So you're mainly interested in like, how can you defeat this thing? Not necessarily defeat, but to, to make peace with perhaps, <laughs> to find a compromise. Okay. Know? Okay. Now tell us what you're, what you. So the, the first thing I tried to do was just look for correlates of the sacred. What do people say go along with the sacred? And then I tried to find an explanation, a concise description of what most accounts for these correlates, and then a theory of, therefore, what the sacred is for and what it does. And in that context, we can then revisit to what extent can we change or reframe or re deal with or compromise with the sacred. So sacred things are important. <laughs> they uh, give us joy. They're great things uh, well worth um, praise and effort. Sacred things unite us. That is, we're often come together via our shared sense of the sacred. Sacred things are idealized in the sense that like God is nearly sacred or an ideal sort of sacred, uh, although the sacred is more things we value, but sacred things are pure, unsullied, not have as many defects, they tend to last long, they don't rot or decay. Um, they, uh, we tend to think of uh, bi more sharp binary distinctions between categories of things that are sacred and other sorts of things. Uh, we tend to not want to uh, mix the sacred and non-sacred things so that they should be clearly distinguished. And we have the sense that we shouldn't be making trade-offs between the sacred and unsacred things. Uh, they shouldn't be mixed or trade. So we shouldn't have money involved if money is revealing our you know, preferences for non-sacred profane things versus pro sacred things. We shouldn't have rules that you know, have a sacrifice to sacred for other non-sacred things. Can I interrupt and ask a question? Yes. Is it okay to trade off or sacrifice one sacred thing for another? Well, part of the norm of sacred or the perception is they don't require such trade-offs. <laughs> sacred things aren't supposed to need trade-offs with each other. They're not supposed to be in conflict. Uh, it's a problem if sacred things are in conflict, and maybe that questions whether one of them is really sacred. When you said that sacred things don't rot, um, what did you mean by that? Well, first of all, these are all just correlates. These aren't sharp requirements. These are just things that tend to 
be seen more for sacred things. But uh, it's like God is sacred in part because he lasts forever and doesn't change. The sky and the space are more sacred because they seem to last a long time without changing or decaying. Um, and the last set of things about the sacred are you're supposed to intuit and feel the sacred rather than mentally calculate. You're not supposed to have numbers and, and, and conscious plans. You don't create the sacred, it creates you. You do it for its own sake and not for the sake of other things. Um, these are most of the main correlates of the sacred. And, you know, commonly described sacred things roughly fit these correlates. We think of love, family, friendship, religion, um, the environment, um, you know, democracy. Uh, for us, it might be various sorts of intellectual uh, priorities. They roughly fit these patterns. Um, the sacred things have these features. So that right there gives us some way to identify the sacred and to look out at it for examples of sacred things. Uh, and then we could ask, why do these things have these features in common? What, what is in common between these things? So this just reminds me, <clears throat> this is a slight, maybe a slight digression or something, but it reminds me of a kind of point of dispute and controversy in ancient philosophy that actually does come up sometimes in sort of our culture about the unity of the virtues. So if you take virtues like courage, justice, moderation, generosity, um, wisdom, there's a question, can you have one without the others? Or can, can it be the case that like the requirements of generosity would make you force you to be unjust? Right. Or um, there was like, you know, a time somebody described the, uh, uh, World Trade Center bombers as courageous, and that was seen as very controversial claim, I think because of a presupposition of the unity of the virtues, like they would have to have all the virtues or, you know, you might think you couldn't possibly just have one of the virtues and then, but also be like evil and unjust or something like that. So it may even be that virtues are sacred and that that's part of why we think they can't conflict with each other the high virtues would be sacred in some sense. So we, we can pick up, if, you, if you're willing to expand the concept of virtues to include relatively right. small, Like Aristotle also things. had low ones like, you know, wittiness or something. You or, might think maybe you could be courageous. It might be virtuous witty. that the floor is clean today rather than dirty, but that it's okay if that bit be traded off against something else. That's not a sacred virtue. That there, That's just something that would be good. Virtue is a disposition of a person in the sense that I'm using it, right? So it's like a, a character trait. Okay, but my disposition to keep the floor clean. Right, right. Right. That yeah, that might be like wittiness or something, a low level. Uh tidiness is like not some great thing, but like courage is uh would be like sacred virtue. Uh and that's um the thought that the virtues are sacred and the thought that they're unified might be connected. I hadn't occurred to me before. So you um you said you're working on this because sacredness has as it were been getting in your way. And I take it that like an example of that would be um, when we think about healthcare, it's difficult for us to think about questions like, should we prolong this terminally ill person's life given the costs? Because that seems like a trade-off um, in which we give up something sacred, like a human life, for something profane like money, right? Um, can, you, can you give a, a kind of summary of what you take to be the bad effects of the sacred on 
a, a question that is like, insofar as it's something that gets in your way, what's it like? So I, the theory I'll explain in a minute, I think helps to summarize what's wrong. But I, I might say that when we refuse to be practical about the sacred, <laughs> uh, we refuse to consider prices uh, or numbers and calculations, we're just going to do a bad job of keeping people alive. So if medicine is sacred, we won't be actually very careful about which treatments are more effective, whether we're spending our money wisely, whether we're choosing the most effective treat people who treat, uh, whether we're making good choices about when to quit treatment. Uh, we're, you know, we're treating it all the same. So like, for example, you know, we, we, once we categorize as something as medicine, the idea is everybody should get it who, who has any plausible benefit for it. And we shouldn't make distinctions between some things that are more effective or less effective. We should just make sure everybody gets all medicine. So your, your thought is that um, when we are treating human life as sacred in a medical context, we, uh, uh, our problem isn't that we think of the preservation and quality of human life from a medical perspective as a really important thing that we should be aiming at and preserving and protecting and um, um, uh, being serious about. It's more that um, in pursuing that goal, insofar as we treat it as sacred, we end up undermining ourselves. That is, we end up taking one step forward and two steps back with regard to the very thing that we're treating as sacred because we're treating it as sacred. Yeah, I'm not sure it's one one step forward, two steps back, or two forward and one back, but we, we are getting less of it right. as a result. And that's a cost. So I could summarize that, you know, we, we do more of sacred things. We, we, we raise the priority of something we consider sacred, but we aren't actually as good at getting it mm. per unit effort we put in. Right. And, and the preferable situation would be in which we, um, we're still pursuing the preservation and betterment of human life. It's just that we're pursuing it as a non-sacred goal. Um, such that we're better able to think critically about where to where to give up and divert resources somewhere else and that sort of thing. Right. Okay. Is it um, <clears throat> when we think in the sacred way about sacred goods, are we even thinking about how much we're getting of it or getting it at all? Well, we're not calculating such things. So the norm of the sacred is that you're supposed to more intuit that you're doing the right thing. But you're still trying to get something. I wonder whether the getting is already a profane way of thinking about it. Right. Well, I mean, most people with respect to medicine don't actually think much about whether the medicine they're getting is more or less effective or appropriate or cost effective. They more put the binary category of medicine. And then there's these priests who tell you what to do, and then you just do it, and you are a, you know, respecting the sacred to the extent you just enter the world of medicine and do whatever they tell you, right? And so don't it, make choices. You don't think. You don't calculate. You just feel. So it may be that what we're doing is something like paying our respects to the sacred, right? Um, in the ways that we engage with it, and we're not trying to somehow get more of it, right? And then it wouldn't follow that by taking the calculative approach, we were we would be doing better what we were already right. doing in the other way. Take another example. The environment is sacred. Mm -hmm. I did a set of polls and it 
ranked surprisingly highly. And you could say, well, we, anytime we see that we're making a concrete choice that hurts the environment and, and helps something profane, we feel bad about that. And we just want those choices to go away. But we're not actually calculating how best to save the environment. We're not actually looking trade-offs. So, you know, we hear of some cute fuzzy animal and we want to do whatever we can for them, but we're not counting well, how many animals there are there like that versus all the ugly animals. And, and we're just not in a calculating frame of mind. We're in a respectful, reverential frame of mind with respect to any particular thing we see in front of us that represents that. And we want to respect it and treat it as sacred without necessarily, as you say, getting more. Okay. All right. Well, why don't you... Oh, Arnold, do you want to say something? Well, can we sum up the problem with the sacred or the problem that the sacred generates as um, it somehow blocks our ability to deliberate especially quantitatively or calculatively about something um, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and it provokes us to think in terms of um, black and white binaries, you know, um, uh, and, and sort of uh, and, hard and, laws. And blocks us from mixing things and blocks us from thinking there might be difficult trade-offs between sacred things. Right. Okay. Thank you. I think Robin's going to give one more part of his theory, and then we can ask him more questions. The the, the sort yes. of explanation, yeah. Well, so first I have to give a other theory that's a common theory in psychology. It's not my theory, but I'm going to build on that uh, in a simple way. So there's something called construal level theory, and the idea is that when, say, you look out at a scene, you will see a few number of large, detailed things up close and lots of small things far away that you don't see much detail for, and that your mind has different ways of thinking about those two things and a continuum in between. So uh, when you think about things far away, you don't know many details, and so you mostly reason about them via abstractions, a few descriptors you have about them. But when you reason about things up close, you use those details. And that's the key distinction. And so the experimental results are that when you think about something far away in space, you also tend to assume it's far away in time, also far away in social distance, far away in hypotheticality, i.e. unlikeliness. And all of these things tend to evoke each other, and similarly for near things. And uh, even, say, the colors, red tends to evoke near, blue tends to invoke far, a large space with an echoey sound tends to invoke far, a closed-in space tends to invoke near. We, we just have all these cues that tend to reinforce each other in the sense that we are looking for each thing to frame as near versus far. And we think about them differently. And in particular, far things, we do think more intuitively, more aesthetically, more crudely, more socially influenced, because far things hardly matter. <laughs> and we don't have, we aren't willing to put much time thinking about them. And so we think about them in this far mode, whereas close up things matter. So when you're in a far mode, you don't care about anything as much. <laughs> Uh, but you're more sort of serene about it. And in near mode, you can be overwhelmed with your passion about it uh, because it's it's strong and close. So you could think of, say, sex is near and love is far. Because <laughs> um, sex is you, it brings your attention and you're completely focused on it. Whereas uh, love, you are seeing it from afar, maybe abstractly in terms of your ideals of love. And... Um, those are examples of near versus far. So this is, seems to be a very well 
you know, worked out in the area of psychology with very robust experimental results. And the key thing to notice here is we look at things up close that are important to us in near mode and things far away from us that are less important in far mode. And we think about far away things abstractly and emotionally and uh, quickly and intuitively. Okay, so given that, the thing to say about the sacred is sacred things are things that we treat as if far away. We think about them in a far mode, even though they're especially important to us. So that second part reverses our usual criteria to switch more into a calculating detail-oriented near mode for things that matter more to us and switch to this more intuitive, crude, abstract approach to things that are unimportant. The sacred is important, yet treated abstractly. Just a question. One thing you said about far mode is that it is more serene, but you also said that we're more emotional. We're more intuitive. That is, we're more going with our emotions to make decisions. Um, although we can have strong emotions in near mode too. Mm -hmm. um, but it's we also have the capacity to say maybe resist our emotions in near mode and to to calculate also. And so in far mode, we don't have the capacity to resist our emotions, but you also said we reason by way of abstraction for things that are far away. And it seems like reasoning by way of abstraction requires a certain, like... So paradoxically, doing math is a near mode sort of mental activity, even though the mathematical items are abstract items. So when I say abstraction here, I'm talking more about this mental style of taking away detail and reasoning in terms of descriptors that don't have much detail. Yeah, Hegel has a, a, a short essay that, unlike most of what he writes, is very clear and well-written called Who Thinks Abstractly, where he he's talking about a case that's been in the news at the time um, uh, and where somebody is accused of murder and referred to as a murderer. And he's objecting to the idea that this person is a murderer. Um, where that's a, a kind of abstraction. And so the point of the essay is to say that it's not the philosophers who think abstractly. It's everyday people who think abstractly and that that's problematic as a way to think about, you know, questions of justice and all of this because you you take away all the details and all that's left is this act that this person performed at one time. And So Hegel would say you should say he murdered someone? Well, yeah, the, the this is you know this is a whole human being. They have a whole life of the context of this crime and all of that, and and you know you you punish the crime or or do whatever the law demands, but to to as it were take away everything else about them and make mm. them a murderer now is to think abstractly, and mm. that 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 it's uh, so. If you ask, do our murderers polite dinner? Yeah, uh, you might say, no, this person is not polite at dinner. Why? Because they're a murderer. That's the one thing you know about them and use that one thing to reason about them in quick and intuitive ways. And that's reasoning abstractly. As opposed to in mathematics, you have formal definitions that are abstractions in a formal sense or even computer science. And so unfortunately, this word abstraction is being used simultaneously for two somewhat different things. Yeah. And maybe the case in the case of mathematics, they're abstract objects in the sense that um they can be fully understood in terms of a few abstract descriptions. Um, 
That is, when one abstracts about a triangle, one isn't reducing its complexity. It it has the level of complexity appropriate to abstract descriptions. Um, whereas to think abstractly about a human being is to make, simplify and eliminate. So that's just it's the same features. sense of abstractly. It's just that it's inappropriate when applied to the human being, but appropriate. Well, it's appropriate for quick and dirty reasoning. Yeah, which is appropriate for a, the many things far away you can't be bothered to think very much about. Uh, abstraction is less appropriate for important things up close, where you can attend to the details. But like, take your description of the sacred and all of its correlates, and then the near-far theory explaining how we engage with it as far, even though it's near. All of that is abstraction, right? We are collecting a set of correlates of the sacred, and the more correlates we have, the more detail we have in reasoning about the sacred. If I only took one of them to reason about the sacred, say a binary distinctions, that would be abstracting the sacred by focusing on one abstract descriptor of the sacred mm. uh, and to the neglect of the rest. The more of the details I take mm. into account, I almost in my wonder whether it's simplification or something is the with it with its with its connotation sure. of so to speak oversimplification might not be the concept that we're looking for here. That is, right. there's correct abstraction, which is fine, right? Um, right? But there's, you know, oversimplification or almost caricaturing of a person as just the murderer. Yeah, I mean, maybe in, in that vein, um, like if we were to take this theory of the, the sacred and we were to say to treat things as sacred is bad. That would be to think abstractly, right? <laughs> right? Because because you know the sacred is a very psychologically and socially complex thing, and and so one thing we could you know we we should always appreciate about it is is the things that are good about sacred thinking, um, right? And so that I, I mean that's my next question is what do we get out of it? That is what, what well, that that's my next point. Does, and my last main point to make. Yeah, <laughs> so we can go into discussion. So. Uh, the, the question is, how do we explain this fact that there's a set of phenomena that even though they're important and especially important to us, we treat them as if from a distance. And so to explain that, I'll focus on this correlate that I mentioned was that we are united around sharing a concept of the sacred often. So if we think of that as the main social function of the sacred, to have a way that we can be united by seeing the same thing the same way, problem is this distinction between near and far gets in the way of uniting around seeing things the same way. So if you are under medical treatment and I am not, and you see your medical treatment in a near mode and I see it in a far mode, you and I may disagree about which medical treatments are appropriate for you, or you deal with the environment up next to you, but you deal with it in a near mode. It's in your backyard. You're practical about various things. And I see it from a far mode. You cut down the sacred old tree. <laughs> the two of us will see what you're doing differently, and we will find it harder to unite around a shared sense and agreement about the sacred. And so the simple solution is that if we are to treat it both from afar, if we are both to see your medicine from a distance, or to see your backyard environment from a distance, then we will agree about how you should treat it, how valuable it is, and we will then be able to unite in our agreement around the sacred. And the more important it is for us to have these things we agree on that bind us together in our agreement, 
then the more it might be worth seeing some valuable things from afar in order to see them the same. So we see things from afar to see them the same. And we want to unite around important things, not about unimportant things. So we need to see the same important things from afar. So um, when I when I read about this on your blog, I, it occurred to me that there might be a, a similar dimension in which the sacred is important for us, um, uh, where that's, as it were, um, a sort of synchronous question. That is, um, many people all at once want to engage in some project, and um, sac- a shared sense of the sacredness of that thing is how we can do that because it eliminates uh, uh, our thinking about certain kinds of details that might send us off in many different directions. Um, but another dimension might be sort of diachronic, even with an individual, um, where it's so a, yes. a funny experience I have with philosophers, um, including myself, is that if you ask a philosopher what they work on, they can give you a very detailed, very precise account of, you know, a problem with, say, um, reasons for belief or, uh, uh, you know, the ethics of um, um, blackmail or, you know, something like that. And then if you ask them what's valuable about philosophy or what's valuable about your work, you, you, and again, this is including myself, you get a story that usually leads them back to their undergraduate days and um, Socrates and, you know, the value of the search for knowledge and things suddenly get very, very generalized. Um, Right. They don't, you know, they're not, they're no longer, you know, in that level of detail in, in, in their published work. They're now talking very generally about love of knowledge and wisdom and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that maybe one way that the sacred plays a role in our lives is that it allows us to pursue very long-term projects that may involve an evolving sense of the value of those projects. Um, and uh, uh, that it, just in the, in the way that um, sacredness protects a community from divergent deliberation over something. It protects us from getting distracted and diverging in all sorts of ways when we're pursuing something like a life project. That sounds like a good point that I hadn't thought of. Um, so, so take the example of education being sacred, a student in school, right? A student in school uh, and through their family tradition will see the project of getting a degree and finishing their education as a sacred project. But at any one moment, <laughs> you know, looking at this class, taking this exam, they could be discouraged and they could ask specifically, what's the value in this? Mm-hmm. Why is this class helpful? And if they were willing to look at the whole project in that same near mode, look at 10 different examples of school and what it seemed to be giving them, they might be willing to challenge and question their commitment to school. <laughs> but if they, each time they ask about school, they jumped back to the sacred mode of school is sacred and I've committed and my family will be deeply disappointed if I don't finish school, then they aren't asking the sort of practical question of why am I going to school? What's the point? Because that's answered by the sacred. Mm. Yeah. So the University of Chicago, uh, uh, Agnes is giving the aims of education talk in, uh, in, in, in a week or so. Um, and uh, uh, there's also the core courses, many of which, especially the humanities core courses, really do focus on this question, what's the point of education and what does it mean to live a, a life as an intellectual person and and what's the significance of the books that one reads in college and that sort of thing. Um, 
that that is tacked on right at the beginning of the educational process. Right. Before um, you can evaluate those claims. Yeah, but also as a way to maybe um, um, help people see their educational project as in this long-term way and not get distracted easily by um, um, worries over the significance of this or that little project that they're involved in. Um, but but you're right, of course, the sacred, as, as we've been discussing, comes with good things and it comes with bad things. It, it prevents you from evaluating um, what you're doing, but it's precisely that and the sacred rule makes, makes for these binary distinctions. So if you say, well, why don't you take an internship? That's an education too. You might resist. No, that doesn't count as education. Mm -hmm. You want to make this sharp binary distinction for what counts as education and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to make you not learn in a lot of in ways you might learn. Right. And so I, I wonder what you think about the sort of justification that was implicit in what Arnold was saying, which is that... There are these big ambitious projects that we take on either as a philosopher or as someone going to school or whatever. Um, and they're sort of um, grander, let's say, than the other projects that we take on. And that partly that's that grandness, that grandeur is the seeing it as sacred. And that were we not to see it as sacred, we we would um, lose out on this diachronic coordination with ourselves, right? And thereby just uh, not pursue things of this kind. We would be more ephemeral creatures uh, and not achieve as great things. Though, as you point out, the very things we're achieving, we're not achieving with maximum efficiency, right? But Arnold is saying, yeah, but the alternative scenario is not one where we achieve them with maximum efficiency. The alternative scenario is one where we are indifferent to things of that size. Indifferent sounds too strong. Uh, you might just be less committed and quit earlier. And the question is whether that's appropriate. So let's take marriage as sacred. Uh, people have a relatively sacred concept of marriage before they get married and as they get married. And then they experience marriage itself, often in conflict with the ideals that they had expected. But if they feel committed to the sacredness of marriage, they will push through the discomfort and uh, unexpected disappointments and stay married in part out of this sense of the sacred, that the marriage is sacred. Even if any one moment is unpleasant, I am achieving the sacred by being married. Uh, but you might say that will mean people won't get divorced when they should. <laughs> So our society in the last few decades has decided that maybe that was going too far. We were treating marriage too sacredly, and maybe people, when they were unhappy after a decade, should quit and do something else because uh, you're making a mistake there by not looking at the details of your relationship and how you're feeling and whether or not this activity is worth doing. So, uh, good. So w w we we now have two places where the sacred plays an important role by precisely by eliminating detail, right? So the, the very thing that makes it good also makes it bad, um, unfortunately. And uh, uh, these are in um, big shared social projects, um, like a war, for example. Exactly. Would be very important to, to, to see the, the terms of victory in, in, in a sacred way, um, um, or democracy, maybe. Um, and we have uh, uh, the 
the long-term projects, even of individual human beings. Um, marriage may be a bit of a mixed case. That is, we have two people involved there, and it's also a long-term project. Um, but the the case that, that sort of, I think, leapt to um, mind immediately was this case of healthcare. And it seems to me that healthcare does not neatly fit into either of those two categories. So it, it's almost as if something else is going on there. So that maybe the sacred plays a third role here that we haven't yet talked about. I don't think it's that far. That is... One of the many things we know about medicine is that people very much prefer to buy it communally. Hmm. Uh, many nations buy na medicine for the nation as a nation and try to show solidarity that way. Mm -hmm. Firms buy medicine for their employees to gain allegiance and solidarity and families buy medicine. Uh, so most medicine is not bought by the individual getting treated for themselves. It's bought by somebody else on their behalf. It is a sign of communal loyalty and bonding. Mm. Okay. And it is a remarkable fact that, as you and I have noticed, that it's always the spouse that tells the other spouse that they need to like go to the doctor or get medical treatment, right. and we each person resists it in their own case, but tells the other <laughs> to do it. And that's just a every couple I know of works like that, and that's a, just a weird, mysterious fact. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so then then medical care would be a case where we treat um, we treat healthcare as sacred. Uh, because it's part of something that is, in a larger sense, sacred, something like a, the maintenance of a community or a relationship or something like that, and that it's a way of showing care or concern for that, but well, abstract. So this theory of the sacred that I described, that we see things from afar so that we could see them together, in some sense, you know, supports Durkheim's story that the community is, in essence, the thing that's sacred even mm. if it's not what you see. Mm -hmm. That is, that's the thing you are revering and supporting by treating other things as sacred, uh, that, those communities. Mm. But we are reluctant to directly revere the community, and we'd rather revere the community indirectly through the things we share as sacred. Yeah, though the community is a sort of means here, right? I mean, the the... The issue of this collect, like, you know, I don't know, we, we take the, the, the idea of a war, like, um, um, where uh, uh, the war goals are tr treated in a kind of sacred way. The, the value of, say, the, 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 you know, the country that's... Democracy. Yeah, something like that, um, is, is being treated as sa sacred. Um, um, it's... It, it's not that we're fighting the war for the sake of the community. Uh, uh, well, often it is. The, the war is the thing that will save the community from destruction. As a community, it will be replaced by a different community if we lose the war. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I, I, I see your point. I, I, I think the, the place that I'm getting a little stuck is the idea that we treat something as sacred in order to socially coordinate on it, in order to achieve the end. Right, because social coordination is necessary right. to achieve the end. Um, but then, if it turns out that the thing that's truly sacred is always the community, um, um, then that story seems to get a little mixed up. That is, uh, uh, we treat the community as sacred in order to achieve what end? Um, the, the story here has to be that we are not supposed to think about these other ends. I mm. mean, when we reach the sacred, it's an end in itself, and mm -hmm. we're not supposed to consciously go beyond that in our calculating of and means and ends. Yeah. But there could be some larger cultural evolution or even genetic evolution that 
selected these behaviors, and then we could ask, what were the pressures behind that evolution? What were what was that trying to achieve? But those wouldn't be conscious goals, or even goals we would embrace on reflection. Uh, if we are seeing something as sacred, we want to see it for its own end, mm-hmm. and uh, we resist seeing it as achieving something else. But I do think that there's an intuitive answer that can be given to why would we treat the community as sacred if treating something as sacred is um, seeing it from afar so we can see it together. It makes sense that the community would be something where we would want to see it together. And thus we'd be willing to pay the costs of seeing it from afar. Yeah, I mean, so the community... we all have the same view about ourselves. I, I take it the community exists insofar as we see it from afar. That is right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Exactly. Right. So it's like we have to, we have to treat the community as sacred, or there's no community. The community is our ability to have a shared. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I guess going back to these other questions, like, like I, I'm not sure I buy the thought that the Durkheim thought um, that, like, you might say, okay, it's by. Um, it's in some sense by treating all these other things as sacred that we create the community, right? Um, Bind it or, or, or connect it. Right. But like in some way, what a community is, is going to be, it's existent. The very existence of the community is dependent on it's being seen in a certain way, uh, I think. Um, but it seems to me that the topics that we choose, right? The important things that we want to, um, you know, s- things like, human life and God and um, education uh, and art um, and friendship and morality. Like these are also just, I feel like they're intrinsically things that are hard to understand. And it would be hard to imagine a person making a lot of progress understanding them if they were trying to do so on their own. And so it makes sense that what we say about these things is we're not going to try to figure them out on our own. We're going to try to somehow make the understanding of those things into a shared project. But it seems to me that if we think about medicine or the environment or other sorts of or war, we can look at them in a detailed calculating mode and we can make a lot of progress understanding them that way. What we will maybe fail to understand is why we care. Yes. Or why why it's so important. That would yes. be the thing we risk losing upon seeing the details of them. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, though it it uh, it seems like we could make some progress. I mean, um it you know, I I don't know if effective altruism is the right approach just setting that aside um to altruism or charity or something like that. Um but it seems to me that the approach is one in which or at least the rhetoric of the approach, is um, something like this. We all treat, you know, human well-being as sacred. I, the effective altruists, and you, the non-effective altruists. Um, uh, 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 But I, the effective altruist, am the real, I'm really fulfilling the sacredness of that thing because I express a much deeper um, care for it. And I express that deeper care for it because I am really concerned about making these kinds of calculations and deliberations and being serious about that sort of thing. And and I, I mean, I don't know if it's consistent with the idea of the sacred that one could express reverence for the sacred by being more deliberative and calculative. 
Um, but that it almost seems like the rhetoric of effective altruism does point in that direction. And there are many other moves you like you can make that with other sorts of things. I can say, if you really want to save people's lives in medicine, then you should be more calculating about the cost effectiveness of treatment and about the institutions that decide you know who you can trust and evaluate quality. And you can say the same in war, that if we were, you know, if we really want to achieve our effects in war, we should be, you know, asking whether it's time to surrender or time to make a peace. In all of these other areas, we often have people who try to make the move by saying, you can be more effective here if you don't treat this sacredly. And that usually other people don't like that. Mm. And people don't like that about effective altruists. That is, you know, when charity is sacred, one of the things we value it for is that you do it intuitively. You, 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 your heart wells up and you, and you feel compelled to help. Mm -hmm. And that's an important part of charity. And the effect of altruists are telling you to do something else than what your heart is telling you in that moment. And you know, it's the same thing even about marriage, right? So sometimes somebody might say, look, uh, I know you've got this romantic ideal and it's great, but like this guy just isn't that good for you. Uh, this life isn't going to go that well. Uh, you know, be realistic here and let's like figure out so practically how your life could go better. And people resist that greatly. No, they, they want to embrace the romantic ideal. And that's almost a pr moral principle of theirs is that they should not look at those details. So one of the, I think, really striking and distinctive features of the Socratic approach to life, as I understand it, is that Socrates is messing with the sacred. That is, he is interacting with people and finding sort of the topic that is sacred to them and is trying to show them that they're doing a bad job in relation to that thing. But he's not doing it in the kind of reductive way that you're describing where he's like, look, um, you know, um, you say that you're pursuing health, but um, really um, you have a certain um, false and too idealized image of what health is involves. And actually it's this more mundane thing. Uh, and if you just exercise more instead of going to the doctor or whatever, um, uh, like telling you that the, the thing you need to do in order to get to your goal is less exalted, less ideal, involves more calculation, et cetera, than you thought. That's the, let's say the reductive approach that, as you say, people are resistant to with effective altruists. And Socrates has this approach where um, he wants to tell you, you know, that the actual way to get your goal is more exalted and you have insufficiently idealized um, so that your sacred thing isn't sacred enough. Uh, and so you're screwing this up. And uh, so like if somebody, you know, is into health, for instance, um, he'll say, well, why would you care that much about the health of your body? Your body is just a tool that your soul is going to use. And so, you know, caring about the tool being in a bad condition seems like a secondary concern after you figure out that the tool user is going to be in a good or bad condition. So let's, if you care about health of your body, what you really should care about is health of your soul. Let's look at that, right? So it's a kind of upward move in the sacred, but it really gives him argumentative leverage on people. And it, it, it um, makes it impossible for them to opt out in the way that you might opt out of the effective altruist move where you just have a kind of distaste for the reduction for the reduction because he's not doing the reduction he's doing something in the opposite direction that doesn't even have a name like up upcycling or something um an upward move not a reductive move that's a good point and i hadn't thought about that uh but apparently it's just 
hard to make that move very often. Not very many people know how to make that move because otherwise I guess we would see it more. But I mean, it might be worth thinking through some concrete examples of that move in our world. Yeah, I mean, it may be that anytime you're approaching somebody, either a community um, or an individual in terms of their long-term projects, you're going to be approaching them um, by talking about something that they take to be sacred. And uh, if you're going to correct them in the way that they're behaving or challenge their approach to that thing, the way you're going to do it is by telling them that they're not being, that is that their attitude towards the sacred is uh, 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 misguided or misled. And, and there's, we're probably going to see a bunch of rhetorical strategies emerge there. But one of them is going to be that you're not treating it as sacred enough, or the thing that you take to be sacred is is actually just a crude idol. And the real sacred thing is even higher than that. And you should be pursuing it in this other way. Um, and, and, and that's sort of what I was saying that the effective altruists, at least rhetorically, seem to me to be often doing. They're, that is, they're saying, um, like, like Peter Singer, it's like, if it, look, if you really take human well-being seriously, then you've got to pursue it in this completely different way. Uh, the, than what you've been doing and, and, and sort of leveraging off of that sense of the sacred. One obstacle here is that, again, there's this norm that the sacred things don't conflict with each other. Mm. There's this unity of the virtues. And therefore, a rhetorical strategy is often to show a conflict between two taken as sacred things mm -hmm. and then to push them to treat one thing as less sacred because it's in conflict with the other and maybe make them choose. But people are resistant to seeing those conflicts. Um, you'll have to push them to force them to see such conflicts. And I think Socrates thought that those conflicts couldn't exist. That is, he thought the ultimately sacred well, thing was going to have to be unified, well, and thus right. it would show that this But thing... So if two things conflict, then one of them can't be sacred. That, right. That's the rhetorical strategy. So something you have been treating as sacred is now to be treated not as sacred because I've convinced you it's not because I showed that it conflicts with something else hmm. that we all agree is more sacred. Although, you know, in truth, sacred isn't binary. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the truth of the matter is that things are more or less sacred and they all have some degree of conflict with each other. So this rhetorical strategy is a bit unfair, but maybe effective. Yeah. I mean, it may be that there are degrees of sacredness in the sort of um, psychological sense of there's going to be degrees to which we are unwilling to do to enter into near mode in relation to something. But I guess I just think, I think Socrates would say, yeah, but look, there's like the thing that's really sacred. And then with respect to that thing, we would be treating it fully as sacred. I told you I did these polls on what was more sacred, but you know, the top of the poll was like family and, and mating, you know? And so I, I think it's hard for most people to actually say this is the most sacred thing. Most people have a large number of things they treat as sacred and they aren't willing to say which is the most. One of the really, um, so, so like, you know, maybe the downside of the um, reductive approach is that it makes the sacred profane. And so it doesn't allow people to have an exalted view of the very thing they're doing. Like, I don't want to just pay for bed nets. I want to have like, a good feeling or, you know, passion or whatever. Um, so, so there's a sense of, um, 
it's too mundane. But the downside of the Socratic view is like, he'll often say things like, take love, you know, and like uh, erotic interest we have in other human beings. And let's look at what we're doing there. I mean, something sacred, right? But he's like, but you know, really, if you really want to understand that sacred activity, you can see that its ends are better achieved in philosophizing. So instead of sex, do philosophy, right? And, uh, uh, you know, that recommendation is a recommendation for how to treat the thing thing as sacred. And obviously there needs to be an argument in place. And he has an argument for, for why that's the case, but people are pretty into sex and their motivations there, their kind of mundane motivations don't seem to go away in the face of, in the presence of, in response to this argument, right? So it's almost the opposite problem where Socrates is calling on you to engage at such a level of sacredness that it's like forgetting that a lot of our motivations are just sort of low and petty and mundane. So I, th I think there's a element of social epistemology here that I hadn't thought of before, which is if sacreds are things we see from afar to see together, then when you have an argument for how I should treat the sacred differently, my, my first intuitive reaction might be to say, will you be able to get other people to see it that way too? Mm -hmm. I might go along with your bid to change my view if we could all go along together. But if I think you aren't going to have much chance of getting others to see it the new way, then I may be reluctant to see it that new way too. I may be more interested in conforming and looking for social conformity in my how I respond to your arguments. Mm. That that might explain a, a phenomenon that every any, anyone teaching philosophy is very familiar with, which is um, that, uh, uh, a moral claim strikes, especially newer students, um, as uninteresting or frivolous if you can't convince even terrible, vicious people of its truth, right? So that if we couldn't convince, you know, the Nazis to change their mind about something and, and see the light, then, you know, it's all, as it were, a matter of opinion, um, and but 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 that would, might be explained by what you were saying just now, which is uh, uh, when we make a moral argument, we're saying, ah, you should treat such and such as sacred. This this should be the focus of the sacred. And then the person responds by saying, well, that's fine and well, but if you can't get, in general, the people who are disagreeing with you, the people at the opposite opposite end of the spectrum, to come along, then what's the point of this? You know, what's what pull could it possibly have? Um, you know, whereas I, I think for philosophers, the the the, the teachers um, were often too deaf to this complaint, precisely because, of course, it's like saying, you know, if I've got some Euclidean proof, what does it matter who agrees with it? I mean, it's the proof is there; it's on the table. It doesn't need to be, you know, everybody in the world could find it to be wrong, but it's still correct. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the idea that the, the 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 sacred needs to be shared in order to be seen as sacred um, would explain why there's that initial resistance to the idea that a moral argument could have significance if it weren't overwhelming in everyone's ears. I think we, I mean, it's interesting to take morality as an example of the sacred, because I might suggest morality is sacred norms, but there are non-sacred norms. <laughs> So if we notice that in our ordinary life, we have 
social norms we collect around that help us coordinate, like opening doors for people or, you know, pick, putting something away after you take it out or things like that. Most of these simple social norms, we can understand why they exist and they have a functionality. And if somebody violates them, we don't see it as a big moral thing. We see it as like a failure to coordinate, you know, what norms we're going to use in some area and we need to adjust. And so we can see how practical and calculating detail oriented we are with norms like should you put it away or maybe you should leave it out because the next person might want it out right we you know all sorts of little things like that should the toilet paper roll over one side or the other side we, we have all these little norms that we can reason about in great detail and comfortably without invoking the sacred and then we have other norms that are sacred norms and now we react differently to those those uh, we have to see from afar those we aren't willing to look at the detail of how they work and whether they're useful in any one context. Those we aren't willing to have a degree of whether they're more or less moral. <laughs> we, we treat th those other norms as sacred. I don't know, though. I think that there's some element of sacredness. Um, like, I, you know, um, uh, I remember, I can't remember the context, but I brought up in some context a debate that we had in my house about um, who should clean up the water on the floor of the shower, the person who just took the shower or the next person to take the shower. And the thought is, well, you might think, of course, it's the person who would, who just took the shower. But if you, if you wait long enough, the water just evaporates. Right. Um, and so you might just be able to do nothing. Right. There's right? less cleaning required under the second norm. Yeah, exactly. Right. Except for the person who has to clean the mold out of the shower. Right. right. <laughs> um, and, but I, like, I remember bringing stuff in some context and there being sort of like an indignation about like, of course it should be the person who caused the mess that has to clean the mess up. Um, and, um, you know, it might be, for instance, if you had always done that and then you saw, like, other people weren't doing it. Like, the the kind of feeling that we have about norms, even in the context of things like who cleans up the shower or traffic norms, right? There's, like, different norms about, you know, how do you do you stay in the extra that lane that's ending? How long do you stay in it before you merge in, right? And, like, Arnold stays in that lane forever and right up until the last minute. And people get really annoyed at him about this. And they they feel very indignant, which suggests that for them, he's like, in some sense, vi violated a sacred norm. I mean, just their emotional response to it. So I think we can have that response to even pretty, um, uh, you know, trivial norms. Yeah, but it could be that, um, um, but, you know, to, to take a, an example from my youth as a driver, um, uh, 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 there was a bridge that uh, would pass under going to work and, um, uh, it was, uh, too narrow for two cars to fit comfortably. And so you went one at a time, a line always built up and it just occurred to me that it would be better if we all just went two at a time, right? There's less stopping and starting. It would be a little bit faster. Um, people didn't like this <laughs> when I tried to implement it by doing it, uh, because I was breaking the rule. I, you know, you're supposed to stop and you're supposed to, I'm, I'm cutting ahead, right? Um, even though I think I was right that it was more efficient, it was still, you know, it was in, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't obeying the stop sign and, and, and it was the sort of thing that, that really annoyed people, but it's not because they had some sacred attachment to bridges and stop signs. It's that there are, um, very abstract general norms about fairness, uh, 
And these things get instantiated in little ways in our culture and our everyday activities, um, like, you know, skipping lines and stuff like that, where uh, sometimes it's a little unpredictable how they get instantiated, right? Like the, the thing about where it emerge when a lane in, in traffic is closing. Um, I, I don't know that I could have predicted that that's exactly how the idea of fairness would get realized there, but it is. And that's, that convention has come to dominate. And, and, and so now it's sacred, but it's not sacred because of traffic laws. It's sacred because, um, um, the, there's this very abstract sense of fairness that we're, we're, we're trying to pursue. I think I would like to acknowledge, and you guys probably would too, that we do want to treat some things as sacred. That is, this isn't a battle against the sacred in the total. We aren't trying, I'm not trying to completely eliminate it. You just want it to be math. Well, math is a thing I think might do well to be more sacred, but that's not encompassing all of the sacred. And, and as a reader of Plato, you find this objectionable? Like, <laughs> I did with... comment on Twitter when Robin did that blog post, and this is just this Platonism. But, um, but see, I think, I mean, I think like sometimes you present yourself with this friendly face towards the sacred, like, oh, I'm good with the sacred or whatever. But I think that the suggestion that math should be what's sacred is, in effect, an attempt to sideline the sacred to where it can do least damage. Even though I think even there, like, it's not clear that you would like the effects of having but, math so be more sacred. Like, we're all doing just tons more math in but school. math isn't that sacred to me. So I think I have to admit there are things sacred to me and they aren't math. Mm. So to me, on reflection, I think the things that are the most sacred to me now are regarding intellectual inquiry. And, for example, I want intellectual inquiry to be done for itself in a certain sort of mode. I want it to be somewhat sharply distinguished from other activities. I'm reluctant to trade off how I do intellectual inquiry for other sorts of considerations. I resent when other sorts of priorities interfere and distort or change intellectual inquiry. If I stand back and calculate intellectual inquiry, none of those are particularly justified. <laughs> Uh, I could say, well, intellectual inquiry could, well, you know, advance even if some people played certain games, say, to cite themselves or to favor their friends in referee reports or things like that. But my sense of the sacred is offended by those things. And that shows me that I am treating intellectual inquiry as sacred. It is something I spend a lot of time doing. I idealize it. I think highly of myself for doing it. <laughs> And I want it to be separated from other mundane things. You know, that makes me think, so very many times I have tried to sell you on this distinction between theoretical and practical reason, and this idea that there are these two quite different things we do with thinking. One of them is trying to understand stuff, and the other is like trying to improve things. But maybe one way to express the thought of the separateness of theoretical reason is just to say that uh is just to say intellectual inquiry is sacred the the treatment of intellectual inquiry is sacred that comes pretty close to anything that could be meant by theoretical reason and like if you think about aristotle and how he would describe the objects of theoretical reasoning he describes them as selected out for their purity, their longevity, right? Yeah. Um, their regularity, 
um, that is there the proper things to think about if you're trying to do this sacred kind of, um, uh, uh, if you're trying to treat thinking itself as sacred? I suppose, but the problem is if, like, if we imagine doing a geometrical proof, I mean, maybe this is evidence that geometry is sacred or we treat it as sacred, but if we, if we think about doing a geometrical proof and we think, okay, I'm trying to find the center of this circle, right? And then I think, ah, oh, well, you know, I should be open to trade-offs here. Like, maybe I can make a guess. That'll be a lot faster. Um, or I can just use a ruler. But you just haven't done a geometrical proof in that case. I mean, it, it's sort of like when we talk about the sacred, we're talking about a context in which we could be but refuse to make trade-offs. I, I think that's exactly a sign that it is sacred. Well, yes. the, the You're not is, allowed to do it that way. The problem is in theoretical reasoning, where I'm taking geometry as my, as my case study here, um, we're not making trade-offs, but it's not because we could be and we're refusing to. It's that trade-offs don't exist here. That's just to say it's really safe. We've really done a great job with... Right. Um, you found a way to find something that's naturally sacred. And that was my argument for treating math as sacred is that many of these idealizations we are tempted to make for other things, they are naturally true more about math. So there's yeah. less distortion. So like it's obvious sacred. that actually just guessing is another way to find the center of a circle and you can get pretty it close. Isn't, it isn't a way to find a circle. <laughs> um, I, so I, but, but in reference to this idea that math should be sacred, it, it seems to me that there are, um, there are, at, at least in the conversation so far, two de novo sources of sacredness. And the one is shared projects and the other is long-term projects, um, where often those are mixed together in various ways. Um, and then we also have this other phenomenon, which is uh, sacredness talk. That is the philosophical, theological, um, rhetorical environment in which we criticize one another over the sacred. And sometimes this takes the form of you know, Socrates giving us a very general, very abstract, we should pursue sacredness itself type of claim. And then at other times, we're talking about something like um, two politicians vying over who is more loyal to the idea of democracy, criticizing various institutions in terms of their loyalty to the sacred ideals that they profess. Um, and that game, especially the more abstract version of it, that is the more sort of philosophical version of it, it seems to me will tend to move in a particular direction, sort of uh, uh, entropically. Um, that is, it will move in, it will move up. Is that if you want to convince somebody that they're treating the sacred poorly, that they're thinking about the sacred badly, in general, the way you are going to have to do that is to say, no, the sacred lies higher than you're aiming, friend. Um, you need to uh, 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 aim higher. So, so I, I mentioned the other day this this passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah uh, is is explaining the triviality of foreign gods by saying, ah, they they go to Tarshish and they cut down the tree and then they set it with gold and they put it on the stand so it doesn't get knocked over. And he's sort of getting us. It's not an argument, but he's he's getting us to think in this near mode way about foreign gods. And just by doing that, he makes them seem non-sacred, right? But then, of course, it can't be that there's some Hebrew statue made of wood and gold and nailed down so it doesn't get knocked over. It's got to be that the Hebrew god is something more elevated than that, something more abstract, something further away, right? 
Um, and so we're going to get a kind of entropic uh, 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 game where all of our discussions of the sacred are going to tend in the direction of the more abstract, the more platonic, um, are, are going to move in the direction of, say, right. treating something like math as sacred. So the, the story of, say, Christianity can be told as saying previously people had gods, but they hadn't moved their gods in a maximal sacred direction. Yeah. It allowed somewhat crude gods and somewhat sullied with dirty details. And Christianity decided to offer a purely, absolutely sacred god who was ideal in every possible way as a way of trumping the other gods. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that's... Um... Um, Christianity, as it were, got on that bandwagon. Uh, I, I, I think that the Muslims were there first, but um, um, sure. And 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 as it were, the philosophers were the first ones. Uh, uh, Plotinus, maybe um, being the the one to really perfect that move, to say something like, "But but but w w w what you're saying, I think, is correct in that um, it's impossible for a given religion to outcompete another when the other is more abstract." In the long run, right? That um, uh, uh, Greco-Roman paganism, to use a, I guess, a slur, um, is not going to compete against a more abstract religion. It's not going to be competitive against something like Christianity or Islam. If Christianity or Islam is able to make the argument that, oh look, your gods happen to look exactly the way that you do. Oh, they have the, your color hair and they have your color eyes. How isn't that a nice little well, coincidence? I mean but the sacred doesn't always win against the profane. So if you're competing on the grounds of being more sacred, you risk losing when the profane competes with the sacred. Well, I, I, I take it that this is a battle between two visions of sacredness. And the sacred, the more abstract one is going to win. And then, of course, the cost of that, the, the, the reason it might lose, is that um, the degree of... Uh, uh, the amount of time it takes to get somebody inducted into that way of thinking about the sacred is longer. It takes more education to think more abstractly. Um, fewer people have time to do think it. Think of the decline of marriage. Mm. I mean, the kinds of relationships that are replacing, you know, being changing and becoming the things that are no happening instead of the previous long-term commitment to marriage, you might think of they are intrinsically look less sacred, except for the fact <laughs> That you know, there's we've made pleasure sacred, enjoyment sacred, uh, to the extent we could say yes, but no, this just feels better. This is more authentic. Um, but you know, in some sense, the abstract description of marriage uh, would win on all the more abstract criteria of what would be the most sacred relationship. Mm. Okay, so um, um, suppose we have a uh, uh, we have our entropic game. That moves us in the direction of abstraction. Um, we have the problem of the costs of getting people to pursue that. That is, um, the more abstract your sacred thing is, the harder it is to get people to believe in it and to understand it. Um, and then we also have this problem of um, new interests and concerns arising in people's practical lives, such that the sacred, what the sacred is, just naturally changes shape over time because we have different shared projects over time and individual long-term projects over time. Um, and that uh, something like the sacredness of marriage could wane, not because it's been replaced by some even more abstract conception of marriage, but just because um, 
we start to think of our individual projects and our shared social projects maybe more in terms of um, autonomy and um, freedom of choice and uh, uh, the sacredness of a career as a life project, right? Where right. Um, uh, uh, men and women are both going to be working and they're both going to have their own independently self-sustaining lives. I mean, and cl clearly, one of the most surprising things about the sacred is that the thing that people used to most use the word sacred for, i.e. religion, has been in great decline. <laughs> we should stop. But before we do, I want to hear what Arnold thinks what is most sacred. Like, what's most sacred to you? And then we should hear Agnes. I think that there are, I mean, as Robin said, I think that there are definitely things that I think of as sacred, um, whether or not I'd like to, or whether or not I think this is entirely rational. Um, um, I think of the pursuit of philosophy as a sacred thing. Um, I'm unwilling to make compromises about it. I'm uh, very unwilling to make trade-offs about it. Uh, uh, I, I think of it in a sort of general sort of way, but it, you know, because this is what sacredness is. I also pursue it doggedly over many, 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 many years, even in cases where it might seem pretty difficult to understand what the significance of a given project is. Um, uh, uh, as for things I think I ought to take ser to take as sacred, um, if I could, as it were, rationally build myself up from the ground up, which I, of course, can't do. Um, I... Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I might. I might start saying things a little like Robin's uh, thought that we should take mathematics as sacred. Not not mathematics, but something like um, a very generalized principle of um, justice, or uh, uh, maybe the the um, the uh, uh, idea of theoretical reason, um, the idea of the truth, that sort of thing. Um, that these are appropriate things to treat as sacred. And uh, not only because I think that they probably are sacred, um, but because they, uh, uh, to take something like the truth as sacred is probably the best thing for a person. That is, it's one ought, ought not make trade-offs about um, um, understanding things and and knowing the truth and, and, and speaking the truth and, and that sort of thing. Or at least we should resist those trade-offs as much as possible. Since I'll pick, I think I see a lot of things as sacred, but we haven't yet talked about the idea of seeing a human being as sacred, which is sort of what a hero is. And or a child. Do we see children? You mean not Your human being child. in the abstract, but... An actual individual. An actual individual human being. I, yeah, I'm not sure we do see our own children as sacred. We see them as very, very valuable, but I think we see them close up in all sorts of ways. But I think some, I think I see Socrates as sacred. And I'm enabled in that by the fact that I don't have to like look at him and see his face, right? So I don't have to see him close up. And in particular, I see him through the point of view of somebody, namely Plato, who took it upon himself to make Socrates sacred. I think that Socrates in the Platonic Dialogues, more so in the Platonic Dialogues than in, say, the treatment he gets from Xenophon, 
um, or certainly more so than the treatment he gets from Aristophanes, we get like something like a sacred person. I, I think so Xenophon was also trying to make Socrates sacred. He was just worse at it. Um, but we get like, like it's, it's, it's almost like um, a step of the way has been done for me by Plato uh, in uh, how to ideal, like presenting someone for the purpose of idealization and um, making him sort of, um, I mean, he's sort of complex enough that he can engage your attention, but in a lot of ways, pretty sim simple enough that you can still um, treat him as sacred. And in some way, like having an individual that you can treat as sacred is emotionally, I think, a bit more engaging than just having an abstract idea. You pursue Socrates for himself. I don't pursue him at all. So that's like this clarification that I made early on where you're like, well, there's two different ways of getting stuff, the sacred way and the calculating way. I just don't think that the sacred way is about getting anything. I think it's about, as you said, paying your respects. I pay my respects. But I'm not trying to get as much Socrates as possible. That doesn't make any sense, right? But I think in general, we're not trying to get more of the sacred. We're just trying to worship it or revere it or be respectful towards it. Well, maybe that when we when we treat human beings as sacred, we treat them as as avatars of something. That is, it's it's via them that we treat something else. As yeah, sacred. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, think that that's right as ways of accessing something. That's else. certainly the only way in which Socrates would tolerate this attitude. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure Socrates <laughs> would like this at all. Yeah. But um um. I was I was wondering if maybe a third way in which the sacred does show up. I know we have to end here. Is is um, when uh, we need to trust or obey somebody like a doctor, um, and trust and obedience is difficult when we're constantly thinking about our options and what we think about things and looking things up on Google and all of that. And so to treat uh, to treat Socrates as sacred is in a way to say, look. I don't understand how things work. I don't understand what the pursuit of philosophy is. I'm going to just go along with the Socrates ride for a little bit and see where it takes me. And that that kind of trust is necessary to 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 the pursuit of these these long term projects. So if we bring up the idea of the sacred and there are priests of the sacred, I think I've noticed how priests of the sacred go out to two extremes, but not in the middle. Mm. Um, for one kind of sacred. There are no priests and everyone is almost by definition equally qualified, such as democracy or even love, perhaps. And for other kinds of sacred, there are priests who are unquestioned. <laughs> Whereas in the middle, when you have experts that are mostly trusted but doubted some degree, then you have to be looking at their details and you're not treating them so sacredly. Mm. But uh, you can treat things sacredly either at either extreme of no priests at all or uh, highly venerated, fully trusted so Socrates is at clearly that second extreme, except that he also knew nothing. So <laughs> no, I, I I actually think Socrates might be one of these people occupying the the middle a little bit. I mean, there were people, and these are, these people are described in the dialogues as venerating Socrates, but they're really looked down on, and there's a lot of pressure not to do that from Plato. Um, but it may be that holding this middle position is very unstable. Um, and it's it's the sort of thing that requires a complex reader like Agnes to to sustain. Um, and so we naturally fall into one of the two extremes. But, you know, if you've got a sure a person spending a lot of time reading the dialogues and they're very clever, then they can they can sustain this middle position. Maybe. That's super interesting. OK, we should stop. Thanks for talking. Yep.